and let's get rocking. This, it, let's pray. As we do, let's pray. Jesus, we thank, we thank you that, uh, man, the Pharisees called you a, a partier and a wine-bibber and this and that. And Lord, you had fun. You loved people. You lived with people. You, you proclaimed the truth of the gospel. And God, that's what we want our lives to be. We don't want to be Pharisees, Lord. We don't want to be hypocrites. We don't want to be cold-hearted, callous, religious people. We want to be real people whose lives have been touched by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for your word that is, is living and it's active. And this morning, we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would make the word of God come alive to our hearts, that we would have greater understanding and insight into who you are this morning as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Second letter to Timothy, second letter to Timothy, it's kind of unique, again, compared to most of Paul's writings because it falls in a classification that it's written to an individual and not to a church. Now, that, that being said, you know, Paul's writing to Timothy. He, he only had three letters that were written to individuals. Or, I guess you could include Philemon in there too, so four. Okay, so he's writing to an individual and but with that said, he understands that once Timothy reads this, it's going to be passed on to the church. Now, the circumstances surrounding this letter are absolutely, in my mind, fascinating. And so I want to tell you a little bit of the history that's in the background that the Bible doesn't, doesn't tell us, okay? Um, but church history does tell us this background, okay? So it's, it's historical, but not found in the Bible, if we were to flip to the back of the, the book of Acts, I'm not asking you to do that this morning, but at the close of, of the book of Acts, Acts recounting just the launch of the church, recounting from the time that Jesus was raised from the dead, that Pentecost happened, that the church was established in all the early workings of the first generation of the church through the ministry of Peter and Paul and the missionary journeys and all that was established. At the end of Acts in chapter 28, where do you find Paul? You find him in Rome. He's in prison. He's awaiting trial as he's appealed to Caesar. And he's, he's in a comfortable spot. As much as he's in prison, it's really house arrest. And he's there and he's waiting trial. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but church history does. That Paul had his trial with Caesar. He went before Caesar Nero, actually. And... Uh, Paul, you, you can see it in, his, in what he said, what's recorded in, in Acts, that he believed that he was called to preach the gospel to Caesar. And at that trial, he did. He proclaimed to Nero the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel, and he appealed to, to Nero. And as he did, Nero rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, but in the process, he saw that Paul was not guilty. He said, this guy's not guilty of anything. He's a religious nut, <laughs> was his assessment. And so although he rejected the gospel, Nero set Paul free. And so um, Paul left there, and we don't know the exact details, but he went on another missionary journey. Some speculate that he went to Spain, maybe into parts of Europe, but he went from Rome and he left there. Here's the thing that happened in the meantime while he was gone. Nero went crazy, as history tells us. When did he go crazy? He went crazy after he heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus and he rejected it. See, the gospel is the most powerful thing for mental health for human beings, to know Jesus. And Nero rejected Jesus and he went nuts. And so you know the story of, hi of history, that in 64 AD, he is credited with starting the fire in Rome, burning down the city because he wanted to be known as the master supreme architect and re wanted to rebuild that city for his image and for his glory. And as things got out of control, Nero realized that he needed a scapegoat in the midst of this situation that he had created for himself. And he didn't have to look far to find a scapegoat. Who did he turn to? Well, there was this group of people called Christians, followers of Jesus Christ. The gospel was rapidly advancing in the Roman Empire. These people claimed that God had called them to be the light of the world. 
i.e. arsonists. <laughs> you know, these, these people claimed that during some Lord's Supper that they drank blood. They, not only were they arsonists, but they were cannibals. And Nero placed the, the blame squarely on the Christians. And persecution absolutely cranked up in the Roman Empire against those who were following Jesus. Somewhere in that time, Paul comes back to Rome. Maybe he returned because of the destruction that had happened in the city and he wanted to go minister and, and share with people and help them in their circumstances. But he came, he came back to Rome and they again rest, arrest him. And as he writes this letter to Timothy, this is the last writing of Paul. This is the very, the very last letter that he wrote. He's sitting, he's sitting in a prison. He knows that there's a guilty conviction coming against him for following, being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he's going to die as a martyr. He knows it's coming. In fact, history says he was beheaded after meeting with Nero again. And so here he is. He's in prison. This is no comfortable house arrest this time, okay? It's not like the first time. He is in a prison and everything that that means in the worst uh, sense of the term. And so as, as he's there, he picks up a pen and he begins to write to Timothy. Let's check it out. Verse 1. He says this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Now, as you read those words, again, you, you got to keep in mind that this dude is in prison. And I don't, I don't know if I could speak. You know, I just think about this. I don't know if I could speak with the same authority and conviction and confidence that he seems to have. You know, I've never been to prison. That might surprise you. But I've never been to prison. But this is no, you know, minimum security country club, okay? This is worse than anything that the Canadian judicial system is going to hand out, okay? This is ancient Rome. It's dungeon. It's leg irons. It's, it's the worst of the worst. And there, there he is. And with that in, with that in mind, it, it blows me away to consider what Paul writes. But you know what's amazing is, is how the Holy Spirit ministers to us and he gives us grace and gives us strength to face the circumstance or the situation that the Lord has led us into. You know, even in the face of death and imprisonment and agony, there, there's a special grace from God that comes to walk in the truth in the midst of those situations. You know, I, I read of one man who was scheduled to die for his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his confession of Jesus. And as the day was approaching, he expressed his concern that when the day came, when the hour came, that he would not have the strength to stand for Christ and to confess the name of Jesus when he was put under that kind of pressure. And when the day came and they fixed that man to the stake and they piled the wood around him and they uh, stoked the flame with boldness, he, he praised the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and confessed him because God gave him grace for that hour even to meet death with faith. And, and Paul's opening words to Timothy don't express any sense of, of shrinking back or any sense of a lack of courage. The, these are the words of a man who, who grasped his identity in Christ, who understood his calling, who understood that he was facing the end of his days, and yet upon his life was a special grace from the Lord. He says, I am an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. So here he is. He's not depressed. He's not downcast, but he's ready to fold up the tent. He, he's ready to move with faith from this life into the next life. Uh, he's not concerned about death. He knows that it's just a change of address for him. Uh, Paul was facing, I would say, you know, a situation that was beyond his natural strength of his flesh and ability to handle. And God gave him the grace to handle that situation. He actually says, I'm an apostle according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. You know, here's the amazing thing. As you think, Paul knows the tent's about to be folded, man. 
I'm, I'm out of here shortly. He speaks of God's calling on his life. And he speaks not of the life to come, but he speaks of the life the gospel brings present right now for you and I. In prison, and yet he has the assurance in his heart that, that the gospel promises life to him in Christ. You know, I, I would say this. Christianity is anything but a detour around life. Christianity is a straight road right through the center of life with the help of God. In fact, I, I, Christianity is the key. Following Jesus is the key to finding fulfillment in this life. Uh, finding fulfillment in the longing of, of our human hearts. And, and, and so, Paul's something amazing is happening in this, in, in this man. You know, when the gospel comes into our life, it's, it's, it's a new life principle that enters into the center of our being where we're filled with the Holy Spirit and, and he begins to direct our hearts and our minds and he enables us to interpret our human situation, circumstance, whatever it is from God's view of things. And Paul's in prison. He says, man, I'm living life. I'm called an apostle. Right in the middle of this, Experiencing the life of God. See, Paul's personal calling as an apostle was rooted in this promise of life found in Christ Jesus. And I would say this, this is the key right here to life. To be on mission with Jesus. To understand your calling and your identity in the Lord. And so, as, you know, as Paul pens this letter, this isn't the friendly chat and the goodbye letter from a spiritual father to a spiritual son. Uh, no, no, this is a, a letter written from the isolation and the loneliness of a prison cell. But yet from that place, Paul asserts his authority as an apostle of Christ Jesus. Not, not because the church chose him, but because God appointed him and set him apart. And you know, I would say this to you and I. God in his will has set you apart. He set me apart. And so what are you facing in life? What has you bound up? What has you overcome with anxiety? What has you locked up like it's a prison in your life? It's imprisoned you. And you know, in the midst of that, God has grace for you. God desires to keep you stronger. In the midst of that situation, it's the Holy Spirit's desire to bring you into fuller life in Christ Jesus. See, with Christ, you may be facing a challenge that is beyond your natural ability to handle. But if you've got Christ, then you're actually in a good spot, a healthy spot. See, because then the Lord's placed you in a spot where you have to be dependent, where you have to lean on him, where you have to cling to your identity in him, where you have to hold on to the promises of God. And the Lord wants to keep you strong and reveal to you the life that is founded in Christ, even when it appears like impending collapse is going to happen in your life. That was where Paul was at and God gave him grace. And he said in verse 2 to Timothy, my beloved child, grace and mercy, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Facing death, what does Paul do? I, I kind of like this. He reaches out to family. He reaches out to his son in the faith. That's who he wants to communicate to when he's facing death. His child in the faith, Timothy, he says, grace and mercy and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace is Paul's traditional greeting. He uses that one everywhere in all of his letters, but to Timothy specifically, he sandwiches something in both of the letters in between that greeting. Grace, mercy, and peace to you, Timothy. Grace, the unmerited favor of God. Now, grace is not assessed to you and I based on, you know, our moral life 
or our lack thereof a moral life. Grace is assessed to you and I on the basis and the nature and the character of God. God is good. Therefore, God is graceful. You know, I, I would encourage you, I've been challenged personally lately to just look every day. I've been just asking the Lord, let me see where your grace is. God, I'm looking for your blessing. Today, God, I'm looking for the unmerited favor that it's not the result of my morality or my lack thereof. I'm just looking for your grace. You're good. I trust you to bless me. Expect the grace of God. Because we're good? No. Because God is good. And his love towards you and I is unmerited. He says, peace to you. You know, what an amazing thing it is to have peace with our maker. Not hostility with God, not alienated from God, no longer enemies with God, but because of the work of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, imputed to us by faith, salvation. Jesus, our, our Savior. You know, the Bible says that the person who doesn't know Jesus uh, is, is still at odds with God, actually his enemy, subject to his wrath, subject to his judgment. At one time, I was an enemy of the Lord. The, the sinful mind, hostile to God, unable to submit to his, his law, controlled by the sinful nature, cannot please God at all. And yet God, in his mercy, sent someone who proclaimed to me and who proclaimed to you, Christ Jesus. They told us of his per perfect life, of his sacrificial death for our sin. They told us of the love of God perfectly expressed in the person of Jesus. They told us of the forgiveness of God available through the work of the cross. Even though I had lived a life of rebellion, they proclaimed the resurrection of Christ that the stone was rolled away, that Jesus had risen from the dead and the Holy Spirit convicted my heart and worked in your heart and convicted your heart and we surrendered our lives to the love of God and we invited Jesus in to be the king of our lives. Amen. It was a glorious day. In repentance, we turn from our sin and in faith, we turn to Jesus and he put his spirit within us. He took our hearts and he gave us new hearts and he changed us and we were born again and no longer does our conscience plague us. No longer do we fear judgment. No longer are we worried about rules. He, no longer are we lonely. No longer do we live a life of hostility to God, but he gave us a peace, the word of God says, that passes all understanding, surpasses all understanding. And so Paul says, grace to you, Timothy, peace to you. But sandwiched in the middle, he says, mercy. I think he was thinking about the vulnerabilities of this young guy. You know, thinking of his work among the Ephesians, thinking of him as a pastor. Mercy. Actually, Charles Spurgeon said this. Mercy, because more than anyone, pastors need mercy. I just personally found that funny. I thought, yeah, that, that's me right there. But look, where's it sourced in? God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, mercy, and peace. Now, as we get into this short letter, uh, Paul, Paul's going to share to Timothy, and, and I kind of see this as the theme as we're going through here, uh, how to keep strong in the midst of a civilization that's collapsing around. Remember, Rome's coming down. The whole thing seems to be imploding for them at this point in time. How to keep strong in the midst of a collapsing civilization. He says this in verse three. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. I remember the context. It's prison. That's a place to grumble. That's a place to complain. That's a place to wallow in self-pity. But Paul took that place and he made it a sanctuary for the presence of God. He, he took that prison cell and for him, it, it became a place to pray. And look, I guess I could 
say to you and I, what feels like prison for you? Might I suggest that you make that place in your life a place of prayer? Is it work? Is it your marriage? You know, is it, the, is it this town? Is it, I, I don't know, whatever it is. Is it being stuck in your, in your job? You know, you maybe think, well, if only I wasn't in this situation right here, God, I could serve you. You know, if it wasn't this, it would be this and it would be glorious. And you know, Paul didn't grumble and sit and complain and say, God, if it wasn't prison, I'd be out doing these missionary journeys. He took the place where God had put him and he made it a place of prayer. And night and day, he interceded for the purposes of the kingdom of God. See, none of the... None of these things that I mentioned, whether it's your work or your marriage or your job or your family or your town that you live in or this reason or it's the church that you go to or whatever the, whatever the issue, none of those things is excuse enough to stop you from the ministry that is the highest calling that we've been given, the ministry of prayer. Paul got down to business. He turned his dungeon into a sanctuary of prayer where night and day he thanked God. Day and night he prayed to the Lord and remembered others in prayer. See, the, a way out wasn't the solution. You know, here's Paul. He's, he wasn't looking for a way out. Maybe he was asking for a change of circumstances, but it was an excuse not to take care of business where God had placed him. He got down to the ministry of prayer. See, I would say this. You know, God's sovereign, right? We're going to see that as we go through this text. He's even sovereign over the way out. Prison's not a big deal. The book of Acts, we know that. He can shake the foundations of a prison and cause doors to fly open. And you can walk out. God's sovereign even over prisons. And Paul knew that. And he turned it into a place of prayer. And so as Paul thought of Timothy, his young son in the faith, he prayed specifically for Timothy, night and day. You know, it's cool that you and I have someone who prays for us night and day. Hebrews chapter seven, the Lord Jesus, our great high priest, who lives forever to intercede on our behalf. Paul says, I, I, I remember in verse four, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that you may be filled with joy. You know, a little bit about Timothy, Timothy was told to drink a little wine in the last letter for his stomach issues. Timothy, we see throughout his story, was timid. He was young. Apparently, he even cried. And the reality is, is that, you know, when you begin to put the puzzle together a little bit about Timothy, he's not exactly the picture of manhood. I mean, you got to get this about that dude, okay? He was emotional, Paul in a minute in the next verse is going to talk about his mommy and his grandma. Okay. Timothy was no muscle head. There were, there weren't tattoos. He wasn't cruising around in a big lifted up, jacked up truck. You know, in a physical sense, you don't categorize him with David or Samson or Caleb or any of the great warring Bible heroes. Like, you know, Elijah who took a sword and killed 400 prophets of Baal. Look, Timothy doesn't fall into that classification. But Timothy was a man of God. You know, he might not fall into that classification, but he's the only person in the New Testament who was called by the title man of God. If you were picking a dodgeball team, he's the last pick. Okay, we'll take Timothy. 100 meter dash, last man across the finish line. Wrestling team? No. but desire to serve God with all of his heart. Desire to teach the word in season and out of season. A desire to pro proclaim Christ without shame. See, the Lord delights in using foolish things of the world to confound the wise, the weak things to show up the strong because when God does so, he gets all of the glory. It all comes to him. And I'll tell you something about Timothy. Timothy was a glory machine. 
a man of God. A man whose life pointed people to Jesus. Not a physical specimen, but spiritually a glory machine pointing people to Jesus. And in verse 5, Paul says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. What a description of Timothy's faith. One word, sincere. That's a, I'd take that. Wouldn't you take that? Timothy, you're genuine in your love for Jesus. You're not a dude full of pretense. Your life isn't deceitful. You love Jesus and you love people. In fact, Paul says, your mother and your grandmother possessed the same kind of faith. They were sincere in their faith before the Lord. You know, as I think about that, I, I, you know, I would say to you, you know, moms, grandmas, uh, dads, grandpas in this room, a sincere faith in Jesus Christ goes a long ways in influencing the next generation in your family to serve Jesus Christ. You want your kids to serve Jesus? Do, do you want your grandchildren to walk with the Lord, then I would say this. Cultivate a life of sincere faith in Jesus Christ. Cultivate a sincere faith. Drop the pretense. Drop the spiritual arrogance. Deal with the areas of deceit. You know, I don't imagine that Lois and Eunice were perfect, but they were this. They were sincere. And they taught Timothy the word. And he believed in Jesus and he was sincere too. And Timothy here, you know, he's a third generation Christian. And he owed it, he owed it to the groundwork of his grandmother and his mother. They'd taught him the scriptures from infancy. See that in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 15. You know, throughout the Bible, the role of the, the family and of godly parentage is clearly taught. You know, honor your father and mother, train up the, your child in the way he shall go and in the end he shall not depart from it. You know, children, obey your parents. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Look, if you're raising kids like I am and like many of you have, it's not exactly an easy task in this culture and society, is it? It's overwhelming. Think of Timothy's case because there was no doubt on the scene to be that spiritual leader. But God always gives special grace for the task and, and it's evident in the, in the job that Lois and Eunice did in bringing up Timothy. He became a powerful advocate of the gospel and the pastor of this church in Ephesus. So three times Paul says to Timothy, I remember when I think about you, I remember you in prayer. When I, when I think about you, I remember your tears. I, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. I remember these things, Timothy. Now I want to remind you of something. A singular command he's about to give him. Verse six. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Yeah, Timothy, your heritage is godly and praise God for that. But beyond that, Timothy, you've received a gift from God. Now, likely in regards to Timothy, it was in regards to the ministry and, and the work of the ministry and to do with preaching the gospel. And he says, stir it up, man. Fan that gift into flame. Really, he's saying something like this. Keep your ministry for Jesus alive. Timothy, don't let the, the, the demands and the responsibilities of preaching the gospel and living in the midst of a pagan society for Jesus get you down, man. I know that it seems there's a lot like is against you, Timothy, in Ephesus, but remember, you're God's man. 
God's spirit is upon you, and he's not given you a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Or self-control. So, you know, I don't know about you, but I sometimes, I get down about serving Jesus at times. I know we all do. Say, so, man, Lord, it feels like we're just standing against a mighty river of culture trying to preach Jesus. But you know, the most common reason that people get down and they, they let the flame go out on the gifts that God has given them is because of fear. What if people don't understand? What if I look like a fool? But I'm, I don't know enough. I'm not educated to speak into this. You know, what if no one responds? Whatever it is. And those things might be true. But the reality is, is that when we step into the gifts that God has given us and step out in our calling, God honors himself and he honors that act of faith. You know, the Bible says that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, Romans eleven twenty nine, Or as other translations say it, uh, the gifts and the calling of God are without regret. Man, God loves you. And God does not make mistakes. He never second guesses himself. God, God is not sitting in heaven and going, man, if only. If only I hadn't given that gift to that individual. He's not thinking, you know, I, I wish I had chosen someone else. Look, God is good and God loves you. And God knew what he was doing when he gifted you to serve in the kingdom of God. And so the question is not to do with God. The question is always to do with you and I. Will we in faith trust God? Or will we in fear shrink back? Timothy, fan it to flame, my man. Faith or fear? Faith, Timothy. Fan it to flame. See, I would say this about fear. Fear... Human fear does not say anything about God. Human fear says something about us. Fear reveals that we are giving something, something besides God, more credit than it deserves. Fear reveals that we put something ahead of our trust in the character and the nature of God. You know, you explore your fear and your fear will lead you to the idols that are crippling you from pursuing the gifts that God has given you, from fanning them into flame. You follow your fears to your idols and you repent and you begin to walk in faith with Jesus Christ. Now I would say this. You and I, we need to know in an increasing measure who this God is whom we've surrendered our life to. To know Jesus. That, that's actually part of the solution to dealing with your fears. Because as you grow in your understanding of the character of God and the identity that he's given you through the cross, the greater becomes your capacity to live the life of faith because you understand the faithfulness of God. God will be faithful so I can walk in faith. For he gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Not fear. So if there's anxiety, if there's worry, if we're troubled, that's not from God. Anxiety in a troubled spirit and a troubled mind reveals something about us, not about God. Maybe it's a misappropriated trust in self rather than trusting God or relying on our sufficiency, the sufficiency of self rather than the sufficiency of Christ. Like I said before, the, the greatest thing for your mental health, the anxiety of the heart, is Jesus Christ and to trust him. You know, the Bible says that in repentance and rest, is your salvation. 
You, you turn from your sin and you rest in the work of the cross. It's not your work. It's not your works that give you rest. It's resting in the work of Jesus. He already did it. The cross did the work. And fear is not from God. He's given you a spirit of power, love, and self-control or sound mind. And so he says in verse 8, therefore. Now when you come to a therefore in the Bible, what's the question you should ask? Remember that? What's that therefore, therefore? Okay. What's that therefore, therefore? Whenever you hit a therefore in a scripture, there's application coming. So why is it there? What's Paul want to say? So I want to read this next section with a little bit of gusto, okay? Because I think it deserves it. Okay, verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day that which has been entrusted to me. Isn't that an awesome passage of scripture? Like that is, that is meat right there, man. Now remember that, you know, Paul is sharing with Timothy how to keep strong in the midst of a collapsing civilization, man, in a world that's chaotic and going to hell in a handbasket. And Paul is concerned to impress upon Timothy two things here. Firstly, the glory of the gospel. And secondly, the responsibility he has to be faithful to that gospel. So let's talk about the glory of the gospel for a minute. The word glory means weight. You know, not... Not as in weight as sitting at the ferry terminal waiting for a BC ferry. But as in weight, you know, that one you don't like when you step on the scale in the morning. Okay? Weight, substance, heaviness. That's the word glory. And Paul says this about the gospel. It's glorious. The gospel contains the weight of glory. There's a heaviness to the gospel that when the gospel is placed upon your life, you're packing some, it's awesome. It's the glory of God. And Paul says there was three purposes to the coming of Jesus in these verses. He says, Jesus came to abolish death, which was the result of sin. Jesus came to bring to light the salvation through the salvation through the finished work of the cross. And, And Jesus came to illuminate, to bring light to the subject of immortality, which, which believers are to have through him at his return. We, you, we're immortal. Jesus rose from the dead and he has a glorified body and immortality has been given to you and I, and we are going to be given a resurrected body. And so if we're to keep strong in the face of a collapsing Civilization, if we're to live beyond our natural ability to handle life, to live, if we're to live the Holy Spirit empowered life, then, then Paul says two things. We, we must resist being ashamed of the gospel and we must be willing to suffer for the gospel. Two things, two actions. Let go of one and embrace the other. Let go of your shame of Jesus Christ and embrace being willing to suffer for the name of Jesus. Let go of the shame and live the unashamed gospel-centered Jesus proclaiming life and be willing to share in suffering for the gospel. Now that's, that's a pretty lofty expectation, don't you think? That kind of freaks me out. It freaks out my flesh. It's like, hold on, Paul. Put on the brakes, dude, because what you're asking me is 
the word of God is asking for a lot here from me. So here's my question. How? How, Paul? How, how do I move from the life of shame? How do I move from the life of being ashamed about Jesus to the life where I am spirit empowered? How do I move from the life of, of being fleshly focused and relying on my natural abilities to the life where I am spirit dependent and living by faith in the work of God? How do we do it? How do I move from that? You know, this is, the, this is the pick up your cross daily and follow after me life that Jesus spoke of, right? How do we get there? And I would say from this text, here's the answer. Glory. Glory of the gospel. The weight of the gospel is the answer. The weight of glory. See, you and I need to feel the healthy weight of the gospel upon our lives. So let's talk about that for a moment. Let's, let's in faith talk for a moment. And, and I, I just trust that, that God will lead us to this place where we feel the weight of glory. That was my prayer as we worked through this text this morning. I said, God, I need to feel the weight of glory. And I pray your church would feel the weight, the weight of the gospel. I mean, is there really weight to the gospel? Well, from what Paul says here uh, and what he says elsewhere, on the scales of eternity, there's nothing heavier than the gospel. He, he said in Romans 1.16, that famous verse, for I am not ashamed, because he's talking about shame here in Timothy as well. In chapter one of Romans, he's talking about the same thing. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. The gospel is the power of God. See, if there's one thing that expresses uh, the power and reveals the power of almighty God, you know that it's not creation? Did you know that it's not the vastness of the universe? Did you know that it's not even the eternal, uncreated, unfathomable nature of God? If there is one thing that completely and wholly reveals the power of God, it is the gospel. The crucified, buried, and risen Jesus Christ ascended in heaven and returning. There's nothing more powerful And when we consider the, you know, the, the concept of power, you think about what power is in a human sense. Why, what's the most powerful human thing? What's the most powerful thing in the physical world? I, was, I, I could think of the nuclear missile, you know. That's pretty powerful. It, that keeps nations on edge and people freaked out and, and, and living in fear. Is there anything more powerful on the earth? I, I, I don't know, but... But there's still a limit to that power. See that the power of a nuclear missile is just is contained to this physical world. But God's power and the power of the gospel affects not only this physical world, but it affects all of eternity in the spiritual world. There's nothing more powerful. If a nuclear missile is powerful, well, then its power is to destroy, but if the gospel is powerful, what's its power? To save. To save. And Paul says he saved us to a holy calling. That is by invitation, he separated us, changing our nature. He changed the nature of Matt. He changed your nature. And you were born again into a life of destiny and calling that is heavenly, not physical. That is spiritual, not fleshly. A holy calling spiritual in its nature given to us by Christ Jesus, he says, before the age began. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. See, this grace to save us was given to Jesus before time began. And the amazing thing about it is that 
Nothing in me, nothing in you initiated that holy calling from God. It wasn't my works. It wasn't my good looks. It wasn't my potential. It, it had nothing to do with me and it had everything to do with the purposes and calling and glory of God. See, so significant is the design of God's salvation. So significant is the nature of salvation that the architect, the great architect, God laid out his plan for salvation for you and I before he laid out the foundations of the earth. He says that grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Isn't that staggering? Our salvation did not begin with Christ's death on a cross. Our salvation did not begin with Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Our salvation did not begin when we put our faith in Christ. In fact, our salvation did not begin with anything that happened in this world or in our concept of time. The dimension of time. Our salvation and its source is traced back to eternity before time was created. Before the foundations of the earth was laid. God had already laid down his plan to... And his purpose is to restore fallen sinners through a state of grace by the work of his son on a cross. See, that's what makes the gospel so awe-inspiring to really consider the experience that you and I have because of Jesus Christ. Whole plan devised by God outside of time and yet revealed inside of time through the manifestation of Jesus, his appearing. And Paul says, with his appearing, he abolished death. Oh, death, where is thy sting? As Paul said, to live is Christ and to die, gain. See, before Christ, death was the enemy. Now the enemy has been abolished. And therefore, in death, I, I have nothing to lose and I have everything to gain. That's why in prison, Paul, Paul, Paul got this, man. This made sense in his life. He understood this. Right on, let's prison, let's make it a sanctuary of prayer. Night and day. And if I die, well then, the tent got folded up and I had to change the address. See, Christ abolished death. But that doesn't mean, you know, death does not exist. You and I, we're, we're sur- there's death in this world all around us. There is death. What it means is this, that he abolished death. It means that Jesus made death powerless to separate us from God. God is for us who shall be against us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. You know, where once sin brought death to my spirit at salvation, my spirit was born again. And never again will death separate me or you from the presence of God. It's just the turning of the page. Life and immortality have been brought to life through the gospel. Life and immortality. By bringing these two together, by bringing them to light, Paul is saying that not only is, you know, the soul, the spirit of the, the believer immortal, but he's also saying the body will become immortal on that resurrection day, on that resurrection morning. The trumps shall sound and the dead in Christ shall rise. You know, the classic, the classic verse, verses from 1 Corinthians 15, they say this, listen and I'll tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trump will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable and the mortal with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that was written will come true. Death is swallowed up in victory. My friends, that is just some of the weight of the gospel. You feel it this morning? The glory of that? The glory. That drives out fear. 
the weight of that glory drives out, you know, shame. Paul actually says this. He says, I, I, was, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of this gospel. Paul was a preacher and he was a teacher of the gospel. Those are two different things. And it's good for us to clarify them. So let me clarify them for a second. Preaching involves proclamation of the gospel to the lost, to those who are headed to destruction. Teaching, on the other hand, is directed towards believers. Okay? Teaching is whereby believers are grounded in the truths and in the faith and in the word of God. Paul said he had both those roles. And a third, an apostle, a sent one, special. So he said, to the gospel, I have this response. I preach it, I teach it, I'm a, a special sent one. You know, often in churches, people crave teachings on all sorts of different practical areas of life. Teach us on family. Teach us on marriage. Uh, teach us about finances. Talk to me about managing my emotions. You know, preach to me about self-esteem and the five how-tos of how I can have healthy self-esteem. The interesting thing is, um, the longer I, I teach in the Bible, seeing something. I'm continually amazed at how little those subjects that I just listed come up. You know, finances is one that I'm like, man, I thought the New Testament talked about finances lots. And then when I teach, it's like, wow. It doesn't seem to, what, what's the deal? See, see, Paul and the other New Testament authors, they didn't, they didn't, you know, they talked about marriage and they talked about finances and they talked about some of these things, but that's not where they put the emphasis of their teaching to the church. Where, where did they put their emphasis? What did Paul emphasize? He emphasized the big themes of the kingdom of God. Eternity, redemption, justification, sanctification, walking in the spirit, the nature of the father. You know, things like that. Why? Why, why did he do that? Because I would say this. When those things are taught and when they are caught by the people of God and they're understood, then matters of marriage and family and life and emotional stability and, and finances, those things begin to take care of themselves as God's people grasp the weight of the gospel and how great it is. It, those things fall under the authority of bigger themes in the word of God. And Paul avoided the stuff people wanted to hear. And he realized that he was an, a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it's weighty enough on its own. And what Paul is saying to Timothy, I think he says to us, you know, because of the glory of the gospel, we carry the same obligation before God. To make the gospel known to other people. You know, I would say to you this, be like Paul. To the non-believer, be a preacher of Jesus. To the believer, point them to the word of God and instruct them in the teachings of the word of God. He says in verse 12, which is why I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Look, it's, it's because of his understanding of the gospel that Paul then became willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. I, we need to do a church mission trip. You know, I've been thinking about it. We just need, we need to go and see how people suffer and how they, how they live and what life is like in other, we're living in a false reality. We need to go and do something like that as a church. Look, Paul said he's, he's not, I, I'm not ashamed. I know whom I have believed. 
Look, if there's a word that you should circle in that verse, verse 12, it's the word whom. Circle it. Paul didn't say, I know what I believe. He said, I know whom I believe. And I can't, you know, as as I consider this whole passage, I can't help but think Paul was transformed as he learned his identity in Christ Jesus. I was praying through this text the other day. Lord, what's the theme? You know, where, where is it? And one word struck my heart, identity. See, Paul is talking to Timothy about his identity as a, a, a blood-bought follower of Jesus Christ. And Paul knew that the, the key to Timothy's transformation was him growing in his understanding of his identity in Christ and coming to know whom he believed. See, Paul spoke of of just this personal conviction regarding the ability of Jesus to guard that which Paul had entrusted to him. Jesus, you gave your life for me. Now I give my life for you and I I trust you. Let's go. Verse 13, I'm going to wrap it up quick here now. He says, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by faith, by by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Two words that are the key words there that I say circle as well. In verse 13, the word follow. In verse 14, the word guard. Two instructions. Follow that pattern of sound words that you've seen in my life. And secondly, Guard the deposit that's been entrusted to you. See, see, to be a true Christian is to be a guardian of the word of God. Did you know that? That's one of our tasks as a church. To defend. To defend the authority and the truthfulness in our teaching and in our preaching and our proclamation of the gospel to not dilute, to not water down, to not di- distort, to not make it popular and suitable and palatable for popular thinking. And we know that in our culture, there's, there are those who are working to undermine the authority of the word of God. They, they're even in the church. But we are not to be those. And we can do it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us, Paul says to Timothy. And then, I'll comment a little bit on this next week. He gives some examples of those who have failed and those who have succeeded in these same directives. Let's check it out. Verse 15 to the end of the passage. He says, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. See, it became, it became dangerous to be associated with Paul. <laughs> Guy was going to get beheaded. So a lot of people began to turn away from him. You are aware that all those who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. I think he was a dairy farmer. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know, you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Amen. Let's pray this morning. God, how great is your word. Lord, it's just, man, it blows us away. And how great is your gospel. That before the ages, before time, you in your grand design laid it all out. And you made your grace available to me. And to each one here. Jesus, we thank you for that grace. Jesus, we thank you for your salvation work. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for your death for our sin. We thank you that death could not hold you down, but you rose from the dead and you've made known to us, you've brought to light life and immortality. You have abolished death. And you saved us. You changed us. We were born again. You gave us a new heart. 
And so, Jesus, we glorify you this morning. We praise you for that great and glorious work. We pray, God, that our lives would be sincere like Timothy. That if there was one definition for us, that it would be sincere as a people of God. Genuine, true, real, authentic. We pray, God, that our lives would increasingly bear the weight of the gospel. God, we ask that you would drive shame, ashamedness of Christ from our life. And I pray, God, that there would be an increasing willingness to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for saving us. And we praise your great and glorious name. And all God's people said, Amen.